Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a few of my colleagues. I've got Chris, Chris Dorides. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Doing, doing well. Doing I well. ask you that every week, and you tell me I'm doing well. That's good. But, yeah, let's let's hope I continue. Uh, <laughs> I know more for that. <laughs> doing well. And we've got uh, Marissa. Marissa's. You, were you here? You no, know, you were AWOL. Last no, time. I was. I was. Yeah, I've been vacationing, Mark. Sorry about that. Oh no, that's, that's <laughs> uh, fair enough. I know you were in Hawaii. I mean, boy, what a mess. I know. I know. I wasn't on Maui, but it's it's really so sad. sad. You know, the funny thing is. Um, I was there this time last year, yeah. well, not, a little less than a year ago, uh, Lahani. And I'll have to say, I'm pronouncing that wrong, but you, you know, the town that got yep. uh, destroyed. And they had this restaurant called the Lahani Grill. And it, I'm, I'm, I don't exa- I'm not exaggerating. It may have been the best meal I've ever had in my life. It was so good. It was just so good. It's such a shame. I feel so bad for those folks. I mean, yeah. what a tough, tough oh. thing. And really tough. Um, and we got Bernard, Bernard Yeros. Bernard, Hi, good to have you. Thank You've you. become a regular, uh, particularly when we've got the uh, inflation numbers. Uh, this is the mm-hmm. week of, for inflation statistics, CPI and PPI. So a lot to talk about there. Good to have you on. Thank you. You look like you're in like in a 1950s movie, though. I don't know. What's that all about? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, yeah. There's no color. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, oh, yeah, the lighting in the room that I'm in uh, is, is kind of weird. And then I've got the loom cube. So I don't know what, what, what effect oh, it's creating. Oh, yeah. But... You look like uh, you're in a um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, the birds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oh, we lost Chris for a moment. Uh, but I'm sure he'll be back. Hey, uh, so... Uh, the CPI, PPI. Uh, you want to give us the rundown on the uh, on those the statistics this week? Of course, yeah. So the July Consumer Price Index, I would say, was go- good news all around. Uh, and just for our listeners, the CPI measures the average change in prices that are paid by consumers for a given basket of goods and services. Um, and in July, the overall CPI rose 0.2 percent. And the core CPI, which economists like to look at because it strips out volatile food and energy prices, that also rose by 0.2%. Uh, both of these growth rates were in line with our and consensus expectations, so there was absolutely no surprise here whatsoever. And while we should feel good about the July CPI, I, I am, you know, there are some key, some upside risks to the CPI that are lurking out there in the offing, uh, you know, in, 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 in the near term, uh, and that are tempering a bit of, the, you know, the optimism that I would otherwise be feeling. Uh, and right now, I guess my my biggest future concern are in energy and food prices. So for the month of July, gasoline prices were really only a minor support to the CPI. They were up only two-tenths of a percent. However, in August, uh, gasoline prices are rising. The national average of regular unleaded gasoline is 30 cents higher than it was a month ago. And also, if we look at wholesale gasoline futures, which typically lead retail gasoline prices by about two weeks, they're also on the rise and suggest that retail gasoline prices are going to head higher throughout the the rest of August. So that suggests that we're going to get a bigger contribution to the CPI from gasoline in August uh, than we did last month. And also within uh, elsewhere within energy, the price of energy services, so think electricity, utility, gas services, uh, those fell by those prices fell by 0.1% in July. But also natural gas prices uh, have risen to a six six month high in August. And if that continues, 
that's also going to show up to a greater degree within the CPI for energy services uh, moving forward. Uh, there's spillover effects from energy into the other most important essential good that we, you know, whose prices we interact with, you know, on a weekly basis, and that's for food. Um, so uh, last month, the CPI for food increased by 0.2%. It wasn't, you know, really a big uh, surprise. I think one one interesting development was that uh, the CPI for food away from home, so this would be the prices you pay at a restaurant, uh, that uh, the CPI for the for food away from home uh, rose at its slowest pace, um, you, you know, rose mm -hmm. at its slowest pace uh, since March 2021. Uh, and this is probably just because wage growth in the food services industry has been relenting meaningfully in, in recent months and it's no longer putting as much upward pressure on the menu prices that consumers are seeing uh, at the restaurant. So while this was a good surprise, I think we are due for an unwelcome upside surprise in food prices in the not so distant future. And that's just because you look at, again, uh, another energy price. If you look at the spot price for diesel, that has risen sharply in recent weeks to its highest level since early February, late uh, January. Uh, and diesel is the absolute workhorse fuel of the agricultural industry. We use it to power the farm equipment, to pump irrigation water, and to transport farm produce. So Diesel prices typically lead grocery store prices or what we would like to call the CPI for food at home by a few months. So if we get further increases in uh, diesel prices, mm -hmm. I'm concerned that that's going to push up on uh, food prices. So hey, hold, on, there. hold on, Bruno. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. I mean, it seems like you're going to the negative almost, I mean, right away without <laughs> even talking about yeah. the positive. I mean- I'm just I'm just looking ahead. There's there's well, stuff okay. that's making yeah, All right, yeah, but yeah. come on. I mean, that CPI report was great, wasn't it? It was great. No, it was great. Okay, it was come great. on. Let's just dwell <laughs> yeah, on that. He, for a that. he bit. led with that, Mark. <laughs> huh? He did he led I guess, with that. for like five seconds, and then he's <laughs> off and running about <laughs> oil prices and food prices. Everything's going up. I mean, come on, come on. All right, come on. Let's just take a, a step. Back. And by the way, we lost Chris Dorides. I don't know what happened to Chris. <laughs> but ho hopefully, he finds his way back, you know, to the podcast. But I know we've been having all kinds of uh, uh, power outages, you know, here. Uh, and I know uh, because we had a terrible storm. So here he's coming back in, and uh, you know, I think he lost internet connectivity for a while. Uh, so that might be part of it. Okay, Bernard. Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me. I mean, what's the fundamental point here, though? Is the fundamental point is what? Inflation is inflation's coming down. Inflation yeah. is coming down. It's, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. And why is it coming down? Well, a lot of the so if we're just looking at again, if we're looking year over year trend growth in yeah. uh, the overall CPI, that's yeah. come down from a from little uh, under nine percent, uh, yeah. you know, almost a year ago, and it's now. At about you know just a little over three percent, so there's been a lot of moderation in inflation, uh, and as you and and as we uh, will talk later in the in the podcast, uh, we've gone this moderation in inflation without uh, a significant rise in in uh, in unemployment or a significant deterioration in the labor market. So we've you know we've really been able to achieve uh, a lot less inflation without worse you know, outcomes in the real economy. Yeah. And, and I should have said up front, because you alluded to it just now, just so the listener knows, mm -hmm. uh, we've got a, another guest, an, an ex, uh, someone uh, from outside Sebnem, 
Kalimi Azkan, and she's a professor of finance uh, economics at the University of Maryland. She's going to be joining us a little bit later in the conversation, and we, we've already recorded that part of the conversation. So that's what you were alluding to. Yeah. Uh, we lost Chris again. I, I mean, I, I don't know what's going on. Uh, but okay. So uh, broadly speaking, it feels like inflation is moving in the right direction here. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the components and abstracting from, you know, a lot of that year over year improvement in inflation is energy, the decline in energy prices compared to a year ago. They are, as you pointed out, they are starting to rise again. And that that's looking to, you know, to the future reports that we're going to see here. But uh, but even abstracting from from the energy prices, we're seeing, you know, a broad based moderation. Exactly. Uh, in inflation. Yeah. And and, um, you know, can do you have a sense of. I'm going to ask one more time and then I'm going to turn to Mariska and get her sense of it. Fundamentally, what's driving this moderation in inflation? If it's not, you know, unemployment hasn't risen, you know, it's not like the economy's growth rate is, it's it's moderated with the Fed rate, except, but it's still pretty solid growth rates. I mean, we're still getting mm-hmm. solid job growth and GDP in the first half of this year was close to 2%, which is close to the economy's potential. So what's what's going on here? What's driving this fundamentally? I would say it's fundamentally it's the unwinding of a lot of pandemic-induced supply chain stress. Uh, so that's showing up in core goods prices, uh, and then it's also the fact that shelter prices, so the cost of housing for renters, and then uh, homeowner, you know the the you know the hypothetical rent that uh, homeowners would pay. So that's uh, owners equivalent rent. That has also come. That has peaked and is starting to come down, and we're expecting that to really come down further. So I would say these are the two key elements that uh, have uh, allowed us to achieve this uh, disinflation without uh, worse labor market outcomes. Got it. Got it. And Marissa, so what do you think? Is that that's the correct answer? Yeah. <laughs> I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is the unwinding of everything that's happened over the past two years with the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, further exacerbating supply chains that were already mucked up during the pandemic, right? So it's just all of that coming back down to earth. Right, okay. Now, the other alternative explanation is demand side push, you know, the fiscal stimulus provided by the American Rescue Plan back, well, over two years ago now. What do you think? Is that playing a role here or not? So, maybe on the margin? Not so, what, how, how big a deal is that or, or, or not? That was more of an issue. That was more of a role that played more of a role last year, whereas this year it's okay. not as much. It, yeah. yeah. It's hard to connect those dots. Yeah. 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 Over now, almost two and a half years after the fact. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Because yeah, that was passed yeah. in March of 21. That that piece of legislation. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I think that yeah. that staved off a more a, a deeper downturn than we would have had, you know, had, had that not passed. But I think at this point, middle income, low income households have likely blown through all of the excess saving that they had during the pandemic and including stimulus money that they got. Mm-hmm. So now we're really seeing the impact of stri- you know, stripping that out, right? Right, right. I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted because Chris keeps coming in and out. <laughs> popping in and out. <laughs> he's popping in and out. I don't and he's trying different things. You can tell, you know, he's trying different things to get it get into the podcast. So I I think he was on his phone the last time. Um okay, so let's let's go back, Bernard, to your your rundown and let's just explore that a little bit more. So what you were 
what you quickly got to was, look, the yes, we've had all this great inflation <laughs> news, uh, but it doesn't feel it feels like it's going to get a lot harder to get inflation back all the way down here. So inflation is sitting in terms of CPI, consumer price index, it feels like it's top line is around three. The core is still higher than that, still mm-hmm. four and a half to five. And to get it all the way back into something we all feel comfortable with, certainly consistent with the Fed's target for which for consumer price inflation is probably about two and a half percent, that's going to be more difficult. And one of the reasons for that is this recent run up in oil prices. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a concern. I mean, I think for now yeah. it's not it's a yellow flag. It's not. I don't think we're. It's not 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 something I'm too concerned about. But it's okay. It's moving in the wrong direction. Yeah. Because it, it with oil now is sitting somewhere between eighty and eighty-five bucks a barrel, mm-hmm. depending on WTI or Brent. That's probably consistent with what four dollars for a gallon of regular unleaded, maybe a little higher than that, something like that. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? And and that that is well above where we were last month, and certainly I think the low was three three buck twenty-five, three buck fifty, something like that, not too long ago. So that's going to add directly to top line inflation next next this next month mm-hmm. when we get the next months for uh, this the for month of august you know next month and then you're also making the point well this is also going to be an issue for food prices because diesel has gone up and diesel's key to the cost of food that's it that's exactly the point you're making. okay fine but you're saying if we stay at 80 85 bucks a barrel this is this is in great for the near term but it doesn't derail this steady moderation inflation in, in yeah yeah okay. exactly yeah yep, okay yep. all right let me ask you another question a negative and positive on the negative side is there any other price out there that you're worried about any other you know uh, 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 commodity or service for which you're fearful that that's going to pick up and make it more difficult for to get inflation back in the bottle so the next risk I see out there, and this is probably going to be a podcast in September, is what's going on with the United Auto Workers strike uh, against the the uh, against the big three U.S. Uh, automakers, Ford, Stellantis, and GM. Uh, in July, new vehicle prices fell by 0.1%, and this was expected in our bottom-up uh, CPI <clears throat> forecast. We, we expected a, um, a decline of this magnitude. Um, and this was expected because you, we have had a welcome spike in U.S. auto assemblies, uh, especially during the second quarter. In April of May of this year, uh, U.S. auto assemblies uh, rose to a level that was even higher than its average for all of 2019, which was well before we had all of these pandemic-related supply chain disruptions. Um, but if we do get a work stop it if the negotiations between uh, the 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 UAW with uh, the big auto automakers if that fails and it ends in a work stoppage sometime in mid uh, September there just isn't enough inventory to really keep prices from uh, rising um, so that because that's going to uh, affect auto production which empirically we do see that that does have some an effect on prices with like a two to three month uh, lag. And it's important to remember that last time we had a UAW strike, uh, I think it was back in 2019, we really didn't see that many major macroeconomic consequences, but that's just because the strike affected only one automaker, not three, which which could be the case this time. And we also weren't being um, impacted by reduced auto inventories, as as is also the case now. So that's just one concern. Mm -hmm. Uh, But whatever upside 
we get to new vehicle prices maybe in the fall or winter because of any potential strike, I think that should should still be largely offset by the enormous disinflation or the enormous deflation that we will see uh, month over month in used vehicle prices, uh, which fell uh, 1.3% in July. Um, And that we should continue to see further declines in used vehicle prices, just based on what uh, what we're seeing in auctions, uh, dealerships are just paying much less than they were before uh, for the used vehicles that they then sell later to consumers. Oh, okay. So what you're saying is another threat to getting inflation in back in the bottle is new vehicle prices, particularly if the UAW strikes and strikes against all the automakers. But that should be offset in part or in whole by continued declines in used vehicle prices? Is that exactly. what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. At least through the early fall, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, these things will f- should, inf- I, presumably the UAW, if there is a strike, mm-hmm. it, it isn't going to go on f- for a length. Well, it could be a few months, but that that probably not longer than that. So this may be an issue for the second half of this year, but as you make mm-hmm. your way into 2024, not so it's just the opposite you would think. It, yeah exactly yeah. okay all right it's not great though hey marissa yeah. and bernard i'm kind of come back and ask you if if there's any other uh components out there that make you more optimistic about inflation going forward but before i do that i'm going to turn to you marissa any any component of of, of the consumer price index commodity or service that you're worried might add to inflationary pressures going forward and you don't need to come up. I'd be no, very happy if you no, can't come I'm, up I'm with not. any, but I'm just asking. No, I think, and I think even if we do inevitably see an increase in headline CPI because of energy prices, I think that the Fed will look through that. And I think they're really focused on core inflation. And in the July CPI report, it's really shelter is the key to really most of that, right? That accounted for 90% of the increase in um, uh, in core services over the over the month of July. So it's really hinging on what's going on with the housing market here, both owner's equivalent rent and rent of shelter. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, so I'm really funny. keyed in on that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm kind of chuckling because I see Chris. Chris is resorting to community. He's got a little hand up. Yeah. He's got a line. We're, we're obviously in Zoom. And so he's got a little hand up. Hey, Chris. And I know what you're going to say because you've got. You know. I know it. But go, go ahead. Go ahead. Tell everybody what you're worried about. Well, Mark, have you been to the doctor lately? I knew he was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I knew he was going to say I, If he didn't say that, I was going to say it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. Medical care services. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, yeah exactly. This is telling us prices fell 1.5% over the last year, fell yeah. 0.4% over the last month. You know, it, this is a measurement issue. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but yeah, clearly this, this might be sending a, bit, sending a, a little bit of a false. Signal, right? It's not. It's not a huge component of the overall CPI basket, but it's not represent. And I, and I do expect this to reverse, right? Yeah, this this goes to health insurance. Life. The way the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the keeper of the data, measures uh, the prices for health insurance. Bernard, do, do you want to explain? I always, I always <laughs> botch the explanation, but. Do you want to take a crack at it? Or, you know what's how the BLS measures this, or 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 not? 
So it was the, they're looking at when the BLS tries to measure health insurance, they're looking at the retained earnings of uh, health insurers. So during the worst of the pandemic, everyone was foregoing routine visits to the, um, to, to the doctor. They weren't having, you know, life threatening or they, they were, they weren't having necessary surgeries. Um, uh, so, uh, insurers weren't paying a lot of premiums, so their retained earnings really shot up. And I think in in the year before, you, uh, you the health insurance CPI was really adding significantly uh, to the overall CPI. But then this went in reverse this year as people were going back to the doctors. You know, after the pandemic, uh, everyone was going back for regular appointments, routines, you know, surgical procedures. Um, and then that retained those retained earnings of uh, health insurers uh, was crimped or was you know was compressed, and then that has led to consistent. You know these are very sticky prices. They only really change. They're updated by the BLS like once a year, and this is not this isn't going to be updated until probably later this year around September I October. October. I think October. October. Yeah. So they've been consistently uh, fall, uh, health insurance prices have been consistently falling uh, by about three to four percent uh, month over month uh, over the past 10 months or so. Uh, but that's going to come to an end. Um, and uh, once that does, that's also one source, one method methodological quirk that's been weighing on the CPI that's going to go away. Yeah. So I think is, is you, you see all these negative month to month numbers for uh, the price of health insurance, medical care services, but that's yeah. going to become a positive. I think yeah. it's in the month of October. And now instead of being a drag on inflation, it'll be adding to inflation. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and it's more of a deal in the consumer expenditure deflator, the PCE, mm -hmm. which is obviously important because that's what the Fed core CPCE is what the Fed looks at. And this plays a much more, the weights are much higher, and I won't go into the reasons why, but much higher in the PCE than in the CPI. So this this could this will be you know a bit of a of a of a, of a, a irritant you know in terms of getting mm -hmm. inflation in back in. Okay, let me ask you this: the uh, as I mentioned, as I said earlier, let me ask you this: um, is there any component, commodity, good, service that? may surprise us in terms of helping us out here and getting inflation back in bernard yeah i i think what one surprise uh this month and it probably will continue was uh and it was one that i just uh, that i mentioned uh, earlier on was the cpi for food away from home so restaurant mm. prices because that had been mm -hmm. rising pretty strongly and i really think that this was tied to just strong wage growth uh, especially in the food services industry, and this was an industry that really was suffering from a lot from high turnover, from a lot of job openings. Um, but we're seeing uh, wage growth in that sector really moderate significantly, and I think that's starting to finally, you know, relieve a lot of that upward pressure that was on uh, this particular category uh, of the CPI. And and just generally, that that just uh, it just highlights the importance of wage growth for um, especially for services. Uh, because you know em empirically you do see a strong relationship between wage growth between excess labor demand and in, in the labor market in, in the labor market and a lot of these core services excluding shelter um, uh, components uh, of the CPI and also the PC deflator so if we do get you know more moderation more slowdown in the labor market I think some of these categories uh, of of, uh, of prices will start to moderate and I, I think that should help us you know, get back down closer to the Fed's 2% target.
Got it. Marissa, any, any components that would help out here? Yeah, I, I actually, I just, in our, my labor research piece this month, I, I wrote about the different components of wages across mm-hmm. industries and the industry that's had the biggest decrease in wage growth over the past year is leisure hospitality, which is where much of that inflation has come from, right, in the service sector. So wages peaked in the first half of last year at almost 9% year over year, and they're down to about 5.5% now, which is still elevated relative to where it was prior to the pandemic. But you're talking about, you know, almost a 50% decline in the in the wage growth rate. So that that should eventually work its way right through wages and then the prices consumers pay for for food and that is perhaps what we're starting to see a little bit of now got it hey chris are you there yep uh, any 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 positives you want to call out i know that's not in your nature but i'm just oh just gosh wow. wow that hurts uh <laughs> i'll uh i'll throw out shelter right uh the rent yeah. should continue to to moderate here but they're still we're still pretty high on a month-to-month basis, even year-to-year. Um, but you know, the uh, private market indicators for new leases suggest decline, so that should bleed in. But it's not going to be immediate, right? It's going to it's going to continue to be a, a fairly lengthy process for the CPI to pick up these changes. But yeah, should continue to help get us down to the to Fed's target. Okay, so our baseline forecast, which uh, assumes the Fed is done raising rates, the, at the funds rates at the terminal rate, and no recession, soft economy, some small increase in unemployment over the next year, but no recession, has inflation, consumer price inflation, top line is now a little over three, the core is a little under five, that by this time next year, they'll both be at the Fed's target at two and a half percent. Bernard, what do you think? I uh, I agree with that. If assuming our uh, because I think our, our shelter for okay. yeah yeah go ahead sorry because right now you know over this over this period of time you're going to get significant housing disinflation and rents account for about if we're just looking at core CPI that accounts for about you know over forty percent of the core CPI right and right now that's rents are tracking at about seven point eight percent year over year our forecast is for that to fall to six percent. And then to fall below, you know, three percent by the end of uh, next year, um, and I think that's doable. I think that's, uh, you know, that's to be expected given the weakness that we're seeing in leases for new tenants uh, thus far. Um, so that's really going to pack a big punch when it comes to, you know, just allowing for the for the CPI to disinflate closer to uh, the Fed's target over this period of time. So you're on board with the baseline? Yes. Yes. Okay, Marissa. I am. Uh... Energy prices, you know, if they remain elevated and they keep going higher, that could that could mess us up a little bit. But yeah, barring that, barring that, yeah, yeah, Chris. It, uh, well, in the absence of a recession, I think it actually might take a bit longer, right? The, right for the reasons we described. So I, I think maybe a quarter or two to really get down to the Fed target. Um, so you're saying the end of next right, year? So that's end of next year, yeah. Okay. Unless we have recession or, or greater weakness, right? Then, right. Then certainly that would speed things up. Right. Okay. All right. Well, of course I'm on board with the baseline. <laughs> I'm all in on the Your baseline. It's <laughs> <laughs> my baseline. Uh, yeah, I think. I, I, I think hope so. I think we're on track. You know, I do think this so-called last mile will be a little difficult. It's going to be 
two steps forward, one step back. But I do think by this time next year, we should be back close to that 2.5% target on CPI. Okay, let's play the game, the statistics game. Uh, that is, we each put forward a number. We The rest of the group tries to figure that out with uh, uh, questions and um, clues, deductive reasoning. The best statistic is one that's not so easy. We don't get it right away. One that's not so hard, we never get it. And if it's timely and apropos to the topic at hand, which is inflation, all the better. Um, okay, Marissa, you're up. You're with your. This is tradition. We always begin with you. So, what's your statistic? My statistic is seventy-seven point four. Seventy-seven point four. Is it related to the inflation data? No. Is it no? Is it is it uh, is it a statistic that came out recently? Yes. Is it the University of Michigan survey? It is. Okay. What component is 77.4? I think the overall is 71.4. Although Marissa is prone to getting negatives and positives wrong. Could she be possibly gotten the 77 versus the 71 wrong? I am not prone, Mark. (laughs) No, no, you're not. I I guess. (laughs) Uh, what? Okay, guys, what in the, the, the present, present condition situation? It is. It's the present conditions present index, conditions. perception of pres- present conditions from the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey. This was the August reading on present conditions, which maybe isn't that interesting in and of itself, but I picked it because it's this has risen for three months straight now. We're on a very downward trajectory, right? It's still very low compared to where it was prior to the pandemic. But in the past two months, for the first time, the present conditions index has risen above the low point that it reached right when the pandemic started. So when the pandemic started in March of 2020, this plummeted. And starting in 2022, this University of Michigan survey has just been completely in the dumps, lower than it was in the bowels of the pandemic, right? So now for the first time, it's above that pandemic low, which I guess is good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a yeah. low, it's a yeah, low bar, but yeah. uh, you know, it's still well below where it was prior to the pandemic. You know what I noticed in that report was the inflation one year ahead inflation expectations. Did you that, notice I was that? considering making that my statistic, but oh, uh, yeah, that was that would have been a good one. Three point three percent, yeah, which is not too far where I think you'd want it to be uh, for consistent with the Fed target. Because if you look historically, in a, in a, in a time when inflation's right where they want it, it's about three percent. So we're within spitting distance of you know that. That that lot that uh, kind of expectations number that would be consistent with the Fed target. That was good. That was very good. Okay, Bernard, you're up. So my statistic is ninety one point nine. Ninety one. That sounds 9. like an index. Small business. Index. Oh, it's NFIB. NFIB. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Mercy, I beat you to it. I wanted, uh, yeah, no, that's oh, debatable. We'll have to replay the tape. Oh, come on. Yeah. Come on. It's a replay. replay. <laughs> uh, that is the overall index, right? Yeah. So, I, yeah, so I, I didn't want to go into some of the details there, but, uh, or I, I didn't want to give the some of the detailed statistics underneath. But one thing that I is interesting about this index is it really speaks to the so called vibes session. Everyone thinks we're in a recession, but they're not acting at all as if that's you know, if that's really the case. 
Uh, and there's about 10 components to the NFIB index and about five of the, half of them are what you can call hard data. So these are asking small businesses, what are their plans for employment, for, for capital expenditures, for inventories? There's also, you know, asking about their current job openings and earnings. Um, and if you look, if you just comp like recreate a, a hard data NFIB index, that's pretty, po it's in positive territory. It's, you know, it's, it's consistent with uh, an economy and expansion. But then if you take the other components that make up the NFIB index, which are more about expectations, these are more soft data, mm. and you just compile them together, they, it's about as low as it's ever been in, you know, going back mm. to the mid '80s, even lower than the, the, you know, than the Great Financial Crisis. Um, so, you know, the Main Street, you know, businesses on Main Street, you know, they're very pessimistic when they look at the outlook. But when you ask them, what are they doing? You know, are they planning to raise employment? Are they planning to, uh, to make capital expenditures? If you know, is now a good time to expand, or you know, how many job openings do you have? It's still pretty solid. All of this looks good, and um, and this is important because they account for a significant share of employment, uh, you know, of you know, private employment, um, and I think that's why everyone was looking at a lot of these negative sentiment. But when you actually looked at the action, and uh, people were looking at this, these negative vibes coming out of consumers and and uh, businesses, and saying, you know, we're you know we're headed for a recession. But when you actually looked at their actions, it told a much different story. And I think that's why we've we've been holding it together uh, strongly. Yeah, I I just it's so interesting, you know, this dichotomy between the hard data and the soft data. You can mm -hmm. see that in all these surveys, the uh, ISM survey, that's the purchasing manager surveys. And even in our survey, we conduct, you know, we have a survey we do every week of businesses and you can kind of feel it there. The kind of the broad atmospheric questions that are very, very negative. The specific questions about jobs or investment, you know, they're fine, you know, not, mm -hmm. no problem. So it's just, I find it so fascinating and maybe we, we should do a podcast on that, you know, mm -hmm. maybe get a behavioral psychologist or something. What the heck is going on? I mean, I've got theories, but I just, it's just, I find that so interesting that, that that's the case. Uh, that's, that was a good one. Okay. Chris, you're up. All right. My number is uh, 2.1. 2.1. And is it uh, an inflation yeah. statistic? It is not. Ooh. Oh. You should, if you if you don't get this mark, I'm going to be very. It's a house price. A, is it a house price index, Chris? No, nope, it's not. Uh, this, is it that's, a delinquency that, rate? Nope. It what is are the actually units? an indicator that you cover, uh, Mark. Oh, I know. It's a small. Is it our business survey? It is. It is. Ah, okay. The, uh, yeah. Kind of like okay. Survey of business confidence. You just mentioned it. <laughs> I just mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to explain? <laughs> uh, maybe you should explain. You, you cover it. It's the it's a diffusion index. Yeah. Right? I've been covering it since 2003, by the way. That's when we first started that survey. Yeah. This is uh, folks that um, are clients on the, they don't have to be clients. So you, you can participate uh, in the survey. It's a weekly survey. We have nine questions. And, you know, I mentioned there's some atmospheric questions around how do you feel about, um, you know, current business conditions broadly? How do you feel about the future six months from now? And then specific questions about hiring and investment, uh, inventories, office space, finan uh, uh, finance, availability, financing, you know, those kinds of things. And then we create 
uh, a overall index, the percent of positive responses, less negative, that diffusion index that Chris just mentioned. And it's on the slightly on the positive side, which is, you know, it's, it, it's, it's consistent with an economy that's kind of sort of treading water, you know, not, not in recession, but, you know, certainly growing below its potential. And, you know, it kind of feels sort of like where the economy has been, but again, it feels like it's been, it's being weighed down a little bit by the, the, uh, the atmospherics, the uh, kind of the, the, the soft data, so, so to speak, but that's a survey that, you know, we've been doing for 20 years and uh, I, I encourage people to, uh, look at it, participate. It, it, you know, that would be, uh, it's always important to have high level participation. So we'd welcome that. And you can do that off our economic view website, uh, the EV website. Did I get that right, Chris? Did it, anything I missed? You did. You did. No, it, you got it. You got it. It's free. All to right. I nailed that one. And baby. It will, yeah. It's free to participate and you get some, uh, you'll get some a report on it every week that, that you do. So there's a, a little give to get if, uh, they give to get yeah. in, in uh, participating. Yeah. Right, right. And I, I do find it very valuable, particularly interestingly enough, the percent of respondents to the question about present conditions, you know, how do you feel about your business uh, and how it's doing right now broadly? The percent that respond positively, that's like the, in my mind, the most um, useful in terms of gauging where you are in the business cycle. And we're right kind of, on the edge of no recession, recession, you know, an economy that's just kind of skirting its way through. And it's, it's global as well. So you might find just some value. That was a good one. Thanks, thanks for calling that out, Chris. All right. I got, uh, I think I got a pretty good one. 2.5%. This might be Inflation a little hard. Related? Inflation related. Oh, uh, uh, that's uh, less, uh, what is it? Less energy, food, and shelter. Oh my gosh, yep. you're a god. Yep. That is great, yep. Chris. I was afraid no one was going to get it. I thought and you here, you you nailed it. Perfect. Because uh, so, I, I saw that number, 2.5. I said, this matches perfectly with Mark's narrative. He's going he's gonna <laughs> to watch out of it. <laughs> you're, well, okay. Come on now. Listen, <laughs> year over year through the month of July, CPI core so I mean exclude food and energy it take out the shelter component it's 2.5 percent which is the target the fed's target and the only thing reason we're not at target if you buy into that measure is the cost of housing the growth in the cost of housing services and as we've been discussing we all know that that's going to slow quite dramatically here in fact you know, we forecast lots of stuff, some of which we're very confident in, some not so much. This we were pretty com about as confident as you can get in forecasting anything because it's tied to rents with a long lag. Those rents, are, market rents are flat to down. And then we know that's going to translate into slower growth in the growth in the cost of housing services over the course of the next year. Thus, my, my baseline forecast a year from now, you know, Cost of growth of cost of housing services is going to be normalized. It's going to be around two and a half percent. And the overall index, the core index, is going to be at two and a half percent. We're going to be at target, right? I mean, isn't that compelling? Well, that's, what like, are, that's a compelling what argument. About those, what about those medical services you just talked about? Yeah, but all those other things, you got cross currents. You got medical services yeah. inflation going up, you got electricity cost inflation going down. 
you got new vehicle prices maybe going up briefly for UAW, but got used vehicle prices going down. All those other things, you know, things obviously can happen between now and then, but, you know, barring something really going off the rails, all those other things feel like they're a wash, you know, some add, some add, subtract, the net of all that is, you know, no big impact. No, that's not, I mean, I looked at that and I go, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Very consistent. Marissa, what do you think? You com- you convinced? It is. It is. I wonder. It's compelling. I I wonder about um, shelter costs. Does the OER component of shelter tend to lag rent? Okay. You know. OER. Because okay. OER. Owner's is, equivalent rent. Right. So it's the implicit rent that a homeowner would get for their home were they to rent it. Essentially. So it's it's an implied calculation. Yeah. And I just wonder if you really need actual rent rent to moderate before before that sort of works its way into the OER component. Uh, I think the answer is yes. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the market rents are a basis for them constructing right. the owner's equivalent rent. So there's a, it's a complicated, like everything in the C, like every data statistic, I guess, and a very complicated, you know, process from going from rents to measured prices but uh yeah that's effectively uh what what they do R- R- bernard right yeah they yeah they yeah. generally yeah and you generally yeah. see tenants rent and owners equivalent rent they, they move, move the largely same. In, in, in the same yeah yeah At they the try to they try to get rents for for uh homes that would be more consistent with homes that people own you know so they try to line that up to make that work better uh but they they still ultimately goes to rents yeah 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 because OER the is the bigger component of Here, of shelter yeah by far by so, far yeah because two-thirds of people in their own homes one-third right. you know rent here's the other interesting thing that you know if you, if you think about it for a second you go oh and it's important you know for people who own their own home right two-thirds of the population they, they either own their own home outright. I think half of people own their own outright and half of people have a, a long 30-year, 15-year fixed rate mortgage. Very few people have rate mortgage mortgages that adjust with you know, market interest rates. So their their cost of housing, it, you know, the actual cash they're shelling out to pay for their housing is not changing. It's not changing at all, right? The cash outlay is not changing, but their cost of living is increasing mm-hmm. as measured by the OER. So the actual economic consequence for their finances is much less serious than, you know, if I have to actually shell out more for food or for apparel or for gasoline, I'm actually, yeah, I'm, I'm shelling out more cash. In this case, you're not, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I, you go, duh. Yeah. <laughs> it just sort of dawned on me, you know, Chris, right? Am I missing something? No, that's right. I guess it would apply for, um, well, to some extent for cars too, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true it's, too. Yeah, true too. You're on your own. Yeah, so, you're not. Yeah. As, as you say, yeah. the, the CPI has a lot of complexity in it. Yeah. I think we summarize it and we use a lot of shorthand, but there's a lot of detail here in both how it's measured and how to interpret it. Right. Well, that was a great conversation about the inflation statistics. I think we covered a lot of ground. I think we, at this point, better move on. This is going to be a very long podcast because we have a great guest. And let me welcome Seb Nim into the conversation.
is Sebnim. Good to see you. How are you? Good. Good to see you, Mark. How are you? I am very well, thank you. And uh, you know, we met a couple three months ago at the uh, New York Fed. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. Yes, definitely. We're all, uh, we're both on the I guess it's called the Board of Economic Advisors or just yes, uh, yeah, exactly, uh, Economic Advisory Board. Yeah, right. And uh, uh, this is a board uh, of advisors set up. We I guess we meet a couple times a year, maybe more than that. Yeah, um, yes. It was, I think, uh, four times before COVID. During COVID, it went down to two times through Zoom. Yeah, so I, we are still in that phase, I believe. Right, and and we we talked about it was a couple of three months ago. So uh, top of mind at that point was uh, the banking crisis. And I want to come back to that, but before we kind of dive into the uh, subject matter, uh, m- maybe you can give us a little bit of, of your background. Uh, you, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about your success and how you, you know, I should say you're now a professor of economics and finance at the University of Maryland. Uh, uh, and uh, I'd like a little bit to know a little bit more about your background and how you got there. Um, sure. I actually, you know, I'm originally from Turkey. I went to college in Turkey, Middle East Technical University. And then I came to United States in 1995 to do my PhD. I did a PhD in economics at Brown University in Providence. And uh, after that, um, you know, so that was, uh, you know, 2000. So I got my PhD in 2000. So last 23 years, I have been busy <laughs> doing economic research, you know, trying to get tenure and uh, all that. And at the same time, uh, visit policy institutions. Uh, so my work is in uh, what we call macroeconomics uh, broadly, but it is international finance and international macroeconomics. So, uh, and it's very uh, policy relevant, applied to policy. So I work on things like uh, transmission of US monetary policy to other countries, inflation, capital flows, uh, globalization, you know, those type of issues. I started at the University of Houston, actually. At that point, uh, we moved there in, in 2000 uh, with my husband. Uh, and then, you know, I had my kids there. I have two, two sons. Now they are 21 years old and 16 years old. They are, they are, they are now uh, yeah, really, really old. I'm remembering those days when they were little. So then I was at the University of Houston for 10 years. After that, I had like... Um, uh, stint at Harvard Kennedy School. I was at European Central Bank uh, right around the entire uh, big uh, crisis of 2007-2008. Uh, I remember actually being at European Central Bank and uh, the, the chair then, Trichet, was saying, oh, this is just a little thing in the United States. It's not going to come here. It's just a little... I remember that. Yeah. I'm like, that is just not possible given the extent of global financial linkages because... You know, that that is my area of expertise. Anyway, so kind of we did a lot of work on that. Um, we wrote, Wasn't he raising, as I recall, like right in the teeth of the financial crisis, he, he, they raised rates, as I recall, right? No, I exactly. Mean, it was just like, yeah. hey, like what are you thinking? Yeah. Everybody was like running around like headless chicken, right? Nobody knew what they're supposed to do. He was saying things like, oh, you know, Ben Benank and I, we were talking every day. Uh, but but that was actually the key moment for my uh, research in a sense that I saw how important and relevant my research 
for policies, we wrote the first piece that shows the exposure of European banks to Greek debt. And this data, which is now very well known, BIS, Bank of International Settlements data, was sitting there at the European Central Bank. Nobody was using it. Nobody even knew it was there. I mean, like, you would think, okay, if you're integrating several countries, you want to know the exposure of your banks to other countries' debt, right? That mm. would first thing you would want to know about. Anyway, so we, this came out in Journal of Finance, which is, the, which is the top journal in finance. So we published there. Then, it, of course, it became very fashionable. I mean, this is 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. After that, I came back. I was in Turkey also visiting a couple of universities there, uh, Koch University, Bilkent University. Then I came to University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. I have been in University of Maryland last 11 years, since 2012. Uh, and, you know, it has been great. I, you know, uh, had a lot of uh, time uh, because I was at University of Maryland, spent at IMF, World Bank, Federal Reserve. I visited all these institutions uh, a long period of time, which helped me a lot to understand the linkages between academic research and policy application, how important it is to bring the state of the art knowledge from academia to policy folks, right? Call it IMF, call it Federal Reserve. And, uh, you know, this is where I am right now. So I wrote a paper for the Jackson Hole Conference in 2019 on the spillovers of U.S. monetary policy. Uh, That became a big hit. Um, So, um, and then, you know, now, you know, I'm here doing my research, uh, (laughs) uh, enjoying. I am actually now going to move again next year, 2024, uh, I am going uh, back to my alma mater. I'm going to be a professor at Brown University start, oh, cool. starting September 2024. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, Thank good. I'm, and, and thanks again for joining us. Uh, I, I know that um, you've done a lot of work with regard to uh, the banking crisis, the recent banking yeah. crisis back yes. in March. In fact, that was the, yeah. you gave a presentation at the New York Fed with President Williams was there and um, the rest of the Fed staff in in. Here we are three or four months after uh, that crisis. And, um, you know, it strikes me that uh, the impact, the fallout has been rather modest, you know, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, if you look at, yes, the banks have tightened up on their underwriting standards. If you look at the senior loan officer survey that the Fed conducts every quarter, that shows a further tightening in underwriting. But in terms of its impact on actual uh, lending activity is... You, know, you can go look at the Federal Reserve's H8 release, which shows the, the assets that the banks have and kind of gives you a pretty good sense of their, their lending. You know, there's been some weakening in commercial industrial lending, CNI lending, but in terms of commercial real estate lending, multifamily lending, construction land development lending, you know, it doesn't, you know, looks it's slowed, but, you know, it hasn't really fallen off to a significant degree. And also deposits, you know, after an initial decline back in March, they appear to have stabilized both for large banks and smaller banks. So I guess the question to you is, am I characterizing this right? Do you, are you coming around to the same conclusion? And what do you think is going on here? Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And if you remember that presentation at New York Fed, Mark, one of the things I was saying uh at that point, we don't know if this is going to uh, really turn out to be a like huge scale uh, banking crisis like the 2008 version. But my expectation at that point was it wasn't going to be. So basically, I predicted the situation. 
And that expectation and prediction is based on the fact that I look at granular data. I mean, this is what my research has been. I look at these uh, linkages between the real sector and the financial sector, but not just say, you know, the entire corporate sector and the banks or the commercial real estate and that and that. This is literally at a granular level. So go and ask question, you know, uh, where does Mark and Shebnam borrows from? So, you know, what is in Mark's portfolio, Shebnam's portfolio or Goldman Sachs portfolio or, you know, Apple's I, or Amazon? I hope you don't know my portfolio. <laughs> Hopefully you don't know my portfolio. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. The point is, you you have to do it at a very granular level. The yeah. the problem is uh, why people got panic and you know said, okay, this is going to be big, big, and the economy is going to solve that and all because everybody talked about this started in regional banks in the small banks, uh, but it can that can you know that can be two things that can go very bad. One, it's just the contagion, right? Everybody's going to panic. And, you know, now this is going to show up in Bank of America's of the world, JP Morgan's of the world, number, number one. Number two, these guys are the regional small banks and small firms borrow from small banks. And then this means once those firms go under, there's going to be a huge impact on employment because small firms are the bread and butter of the economy. Okay. I explained in that presentation, first of all, this is not correct, right? This is this I don't know why, but it is just very deeply ingrained thing in people's minds because people only look at like Apple's and Amazon's of the world, like listed firms and CompuStat firms. And then, you know, so these kind of large guys. So and then jump from that to to the conclusion that oh, small guys must be borrowing from small banks. This is not true. U.S. economy is super heterogeneous. And unless you look at literally like every single small firm, every single small and big agent, Mark Shepman versus Apple, Amazon, or like this 100 employee firms versus 3,000 employee firms, you wouldn't know who is borrowing from who and who is exposed to what, right? Same goes for the banks, right? We understand these small regional banks like SVBs of the world did take interest rate risk, right? They didn't do their uh, diligence, which we can link back to, the regulatory failures, but the, the bottom the, the, of the fact is there are other banks in the economy, large banks like Bank of America, they are subject to regulation. They didn't take that much of this risk and small firms do borrow from those banks. So in fact, the results I showed in that meeting is from our work, not rely on H8 data. You said like at the beginning, people were looking at this H8, some commercial loans. These are all like kind of these- Just to stop you for a second. So the H8 is the- uh, data that the Federal Reserve yeah. puts together on bank balance sheets, their assets and liabilities, and they release this every week. But so it's, a, it's an a, it's it's an aggregation across. It is an aggregation, exactly. Not every bank is in it. That's yeah. another. Not every bank is in it. Right. The big advantage is is going to be that is something like that moves high frequency, B two quarterly, so people just go and rush. Uh, to H8 or data sets like that because to find out the information quickly. But the, the big disadvantage is not everybody in it, uh, you know, so it doesn't cover every single bank and it's not going to tell you anything in terms of which firm, uh, which company borrows from which bank. That is the data called Y14, which is also Federal Reserve's uh, regulatory data. We work with that data. This data has been started the, the collecting uh, after uh, the Fed started collecting this data after 2008 crisis, exactly because of the purpose of we want to understand where the risk in the economy and how like these isolated risks like the subprime of 2008 can be systemic risk, right? Can, can become like economy-wide. So we work with that data and that data 
data, I mean, is going to cover a large set of almost universe of the firms in the United States, a representative data set. So you would know the guys with like, you know, less than 500 employees, what we call SMEs. And at the same time, you still will know the guys like Apple and Amazon. And you have a more complete picture who borrows from who. And when you look at that data set, going back to my presentation at the New York Fed, we see that small guys borrow from big banks. So which brings me to the point that as long as these regional stress, banking stress, like, you know, SVBs don't, you know, jump to the big banks, as long as the big banks balance sheets are safe, we are not going to have a crisis because uh, small guys are still borrowing from the big banks and small guys have very strong demand. Remember, this is the other point I made. Unfortunately, in this literature, in this topic, we think a lot from the supply side, supply of credit side. So, oh, if banks are in trouble, they are doomed, right? This kind of was the case in 2008. But of course, all banks were under trouble then, right? All banks, not just like SVB and First Republic and, and all that. We have to understand there is a boom side to this picture. There is a there is a side when we are not in a financial crisis, when we are when not all banks are in trouble. The boom, meaning the demand, matters a lot. The customer demand, the credit demand, and that's the situation we are in. I mean, this is the situation Fed is trying to slow down now over 15 months. Still not there. We have a strong economy. Demand is strong. I mean, if the customer demand is strong, that firm is going to go and demand credit. And if the if a you know safe bank like Bank of America wants to give that credit, then you don't have any problem. So this type of heterogeneity is very important to understand, Mark. Okay. So so what you're saying, just to summarize, is uh, the, the the fallout from the crisis has been modest, and one of the key reasons for that is that. Uh, uh, small businesses have been able to get credit because if you if you're you know if you can take a closer look at the, the data at a granular level as you as you said you'll see that small businesses are also borrowing from the big guys the, yeah. the JP Morgans the B of A's the Wells Fargo's and continue to have access to credit and that has allowed them to continue to operate and allow the economy to move forward that that's kind of the message that you're, you're exactly. Making. Exactly. Got, exactly. It. Got it. Well, let me ask you this. So one concern is that, uh, uh, of course, the Federal Reserve had to respond. Fed, the FDIC, Treasury responded, guaranteed the deposits of, uh, of uh, uh, whether folks are insured or uninsured, you know, in, S in SVB and the other troubled banking institutions. The other thing that the Fed did was establish a funding uh, a facility to allow banks to borrow against their security holdings and they could uh, uh, value the securities at par, not at their lower value given the higher interest rates. And that that program has is still in place and it's you know if you look every week, you can you can see that data as well from the Fed every week, uh, the H, the so-called H4 uh, that continues to increase slowly but surely over time. So it feels like the system is still, under a fair amount of stress. And uh, one concern is that the, uh, given the, the, the Federal Reserve's very aggressive rate hikes and the inversion of the yield curve, that banks are under a lot of pressure because their, their net interest margin, you know, their difference between their funding costs and their, their loan lending rates is under pressure. Now they've been able to manage that, particularly the big guys, as you point out, have been able to manage that uh, you know, up to this point in time, net interest margins have held up pretty well. But as time goes on here, it gets increasingly more difficult for banks to do that. You know, they hedge, they match, but that gets very costly, very difficult to do. 
So their net interest margins come under increasing pressure. So if the Fed has to keep its foot on the brakes for an extended period, the yield curve remains inverted for an extended period. The worry is that the banking system, which is still under a lot of stress, the bank term funding program continues to be used at a, at a very high, uh, high rate, something's going to break in the system. Is it, what do you think? Is that, a, is that concern overdone or is that a, is a reasonable concern? No, no, it is definitely a reasonable concern. You're exactly right. But at this point, as you said, Fed has just underwritten the entire banking system, right? I mean, that's, that's those uh, policies dead. And yes, we can look at, you know, who is using those, who is withdrawing from, from that and all that. But that's that's the guarantee. Now, of course, that was an uh, emergency panic moment, uh, you know, underwriting. We shouldn't be doing these things like that. Now, the, the uh, of course, I mean, this is why if, if you were, you know, following the entire, um, you know, media coverage of this, emerging market uh, banks were laughing their head off, right? Because it's the emerging market banking one-on-one. No, nobody would do this. I mean, you, you wouldn't have an emerging market bank. <laughs> Remember, Brazilians were saying this, that would take this risk, right? I mean, do you are in a tightening cycle. Every emerging market bank would know what would they do in a tightening cycle and a losing cycle. So clearly... You know, this didn't happen in the United States. Uh, You're saying that this is banking 101, meaning no one would have get, gotten caught with this interest rate no, mismatch no, problem. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, but call interest rate risk, you wouldn't, you wouldn't because you yeah. would crash and burn. Right. And of course, they learn it the hard way. I mean, all these countries went through banking crisis because of the similar situation. And especially in those countries, because inflation is more volatile, you go to this easing and tightening cycles of monetary policy more frequent, right? So they learned the hard way, but also regulation came. I mean, after banking crisis, after banking crisis, if you look at emerging markets right now, all the banks are regulated, all. It is not like the United States where you have these, uh, you know, 50 guys, the big guys are regulated, which is which is how we get the data, the I-14 data, and the rest is not. And of course, in the United States, we have a huge number of banks, right? We are talking about, I mean, 3,000, 4,000, whatever. I mean, we came down from 15,000. So I guess, uh, you know, so that's <laughs> over the last 30 years. But still, it's it's a huge number of banks. There are a lot of small banks and they are not regulated. Uh, the way out of this problem is every bank should be regulated. I mean, I, I say this all the time. There are other people uh, inside the Fed and outside sharing this uh, view. This is what we learn through the bread and butter, bread and butter of banking crisis in the emerging market world. You regulate everyone. I I mean, the minute you have these type of, okay, I'm going to regulate large guys because large guys are the systemically, systemically important guys. I will let the small guys be because they are small and regulation is costly for them. These, these things are going to happen. Well, they're, they're regulated. You're saying they have the same regulation, the same capital standards, same liquidity requirements? That, you, can, you can think about that. You can fine tune that. You can fine tune and like, you know, think the regulation in a, in a counter cyclical way in, a, in terms of, you know, proportion to their size. But basically you should have, you know, they should have been prevented from taking this type of interest rate risk on their balance sheet during a tightening cycle. That okay, so you're, they're regulated, but you're saying they weren't regulated significantly enough. They didn't. They, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the I mean, Silicon Valley Bank shouldn't have been able to do what they did. In, exactly, in, because because the interest rate risk exercise. If you look at the other guys, the the the, the big guys, part of the CCRA, yeah. that's the stress testing 
exercise and you know the big bang's part of that when i say regulated yeah i'm, I'm using I'm, I'm abusing terminology sorry about that but when i say regulation I'm, I'm talking about the regulation that the large guys large banks bank of americas of the world are subject to the part of that regulation is this interest rate risk right these exercises wrong right for them right that's why they have a very diversified balance sheet. They don't have this type of like, you know, low returning asset completely filling up their asset side of their balance sheet, right? Because they 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 are subject to these test of this type of testing, stress testing exercise and interest rate risk is part of that during a tightening monetary pulse cycle. Now, this wasn't done for the small guys because small guys, they weren't part of that. So this is what I'm saying. When I say regulated, you know, everybody should be regulated for all sorts of risks, basically. And this, this is such a plain vanilla risk, right? I mean, interest rate risk during a tightening cycle. This is what I'm why I'm saying it's emerging market banking 101. Yep. So okay, so you're 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 saying the, the reason why SVB signature and other smaller institutions got into trouble here is because they were not well regulated. That, yeah, it, they, don't a, they don't have a they don't have a diverse portfolio. Their their balance sheet is completely uh, their asset side is completely uh, filled up with these uh, low return you know debt U.S. Treasuries and stuff. So I mean you know you have to diversify. You have to have a diversified uh, portfolio on the asset side, and then the liability side. They also have a problem with the liability side, right? They have the same type of depositors. These are this is the tech guys, right? This is why they became in a they 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 caught up in this thing. They they all their depositors are same group. They texted each other, let's get out of this bank. And then their assets cannot, you know, uh, meet that type of all deposits going at the same time because it's not a diversified uh, portfolio on the asset side. Just to push back a little bit, um, some would argue, and I'm sympathetic to the argument, that it isn't about regulation so much as it's about the implementation of that regulation. Supervision, right? yeah, yeah, no, no, supervision. I agree. I agree with that. Supervision. Yeah. Okay. No, let me let me clarify. In fact, one of my very early Bloomberg interviews on this topic, I I did say exactly when this question was asked: Is it regulation or supervision? I said it is supervision. So this is why I said you know I might be abusing the word regulation, but okay. the supervision it, it is a you know failure of supervision. But I think supervision comes with regulation, right? I mean, if the regulation tells you, okay, you know, you have to be supervised if you were taking interest rate risk or not, and it's kind of very, uh, you know, that's enforced and supervision will come together with that. And okay, so, you know, I'm supervising you, I, I look, and then you have so much interest rate risk on the balance sheet, so changes. But I mean, you see, they go together. It is a failure of supervision, I fully agree. But if the supervisor had no way of enforcing it, I mean, this, this is a story, right? I mean, we did actually heard that uh, Federal Zero San Francisco did tell them this is not good. So they were warned, right? Uh, First Republic, definitely, uh, that there was a warning sign, but they didn't do anything about it. So that's the thing. These things go together. It, it, is, it, it is a failure of supervision, but if a, if a supervisor telling you, look, I don't like this, this is dangerous, then if the bank is saying, fine, I'm not going to do anything about that, then, then you know, what, how are we going to get out of that situation? So that has just, to be sort of enforcement mechanism. Just looking, so going forward, so the system is, the financial banking system, financial system is still under significant pressure. I mean, the uh, Fed has put flat on the brakes, curves inverted, and, uh, and other aspects of the operating environment that banks you know, are dealing with uh, are more difficult. I mean, credit quality is eroding, de delinquencies, defaults are rising, loan growth, it's 
still positive, but it's definitely slowing. The tightening and underwriting is slowing loan growth. We've got higher regulatory costs. Uh, the the uh, FDI, the, the, tr the Fed and other regulators came forward with new capital standards and liquidity requirements, and that's going to be more, more costly. Supervision, supervisory costs are up. So you kind of kind of add all of that up and it says, okay, the banks, they're under a lot of pressure here. And it feels like something, you know, as long as the longer this goes on, the more likely something's going to break somewhere. Is that a, a, a risk? I mean, are you how worried are you about that? Or am I just overstating things here? Am I is that no, no, there is a risk, but I don't think it is it is uh, right to think that it is going to come from the bank side. I mean, banks are under pressure, banks are on banks, but I don't think that's going to be uh, no. from that side because banks, I mean, let's face it, after 2008, a lot of regulation rolled out. Mm. Banks now are in much better shape than they were in 2006 and 2007. So I don't think, again, unless like a huge shock happens like that, like, you know, what happened then? Everybody is bad, everybody exposed to the same toxic assets, right? Unless we find out something like that going on, it is not going to come from the banking side just because Federal Reserve tightening monetary policy. Remember, this whole notion of Federal Reserve is a tightening cycle, so banks are going to break. I, I don't think this is correct. Yes, there are going to be some banks breaking. They, they already broke, right? But that's because of their own mistakes. So the system as a whole, like if we again compare to 2008, is I think safe. I think the danger is going to come from the real side, the real economy. And that is going to depend on, you know, which loans they gave out, the banks, to who. I mean, if, if during this zero lower bound, super low interest rate era started in 2008-9, if they really gave out bad loans to bad customers, Yes, then, okay, obviously at some point, the real economy is going to slow down and those guys are going to start defaulting on those. And, and if the bank, again, on the, uh, you know, asset side, similar to this, um, you know, the low yielding treasury story, if they literally focus on those type of customers, firms and households, right? I mean, then, then yes, then, okay, we are going to have a problem at our end. But I don't think that was the case. Yes, banks did give out some, you know, probably shaky loans during this uh, cheap credit era. But I don't think it, it was that concentrated that everything is going to blow up uh, at the same time. I think what is going on right now, and this is, this is the question of soft landing, right? If Fed can engineer this soft landing immaculately till the end, right? Till we come to down to 2%, Sure, we are going to see some sort of defaults there and there, pockets of it. But as long as the entire SMEs, uh, which, by the way, 99% of the, all the firms in the United States, and they account for 70% of employment in the United States, if that entire group, you know, go under, if that doesn't happen, then we don't have a problem, right? We are going to see things, but we are not going to have like a huge crisis and recession, right? But but that's that's the thing, right? And that comes back to soft landing. If the soft landing fails. And if somehow going now from 3.5 to 2 is going to involve very, very quick slowing down of the economy, so demand is kind of like crashing, then we are going to have a problem in our end, of course. And, and that's that's what we are all uh, you know hoping won't happen. And Fed so far has been successful in that. But of course, it's yet to be seen still. We are not fully there yet. Just FYI to the listener, SME is small, mid-sized 
enterprise. Uh, so yeah. it's effectively small business. It's kind of the yeah. acronym, mostly I think European, maybe global, but not, most people, do people, Chris, do people here in the U.S. say SME? I don't, I don't know. No, this is they true. Do. People say small businesses, but globally, yeah. SME, That's what you mean. Yeah. Enterprises, blah, blah, blah. but this is very important. I really want the listeners understand. These guys always thought, oh, this is just a mom and pop shop, the pizza store on the corner, the dry cleaning. No, these are firms less than 500 employees. They are huge. They are 99.9% of the universe of the firms in the United States. Just to give you a you know uh, idea, the average size in these firms are going to be something around like you know 50 employment average. The average size of the listed firm is like 4,000. So I mean, these, these firms are day and night. The, the, the problem is the, the, the big guys is like 0.1% of the economy. In terms of employment, which is the big deal, of course, the SMEs run the show. I mean, remember the PPP program. When the PPP program launched, Paycheck Protection Program during COVID, the entire thing is like, that's for SMEs, right? To save firms under 500 employees. That was done to save the economy because these firms are the backbone of the economy in terms of growth, employment and innovation. So we just we just ignore these guys because we don't know much about them because first of all we don't know anything about their financing. They don't, you know, they only file returns to tax records. So there isn't any publicly available data we can look at it. But they are they are very important. And if they go under in large numbers, yes, then of course we are going to have a recession in our hands. But as long as you know not all the banks are in trouble. Some banks are in trouble, but not all of them. And as long as there's still semi-strong demand in the economy, the economy is not, you know, going to a recession with like with flashing light, like high speed. These guys are not going to go under uh, in in bulk, in my opinion. Oh, okay. So, so what you're saying, I just because I want to make sure I got it right, is you don't think the if something does the economy in it's not going to be the banking system or the financial system it's, that's not where this is going to come from it's something else has got to happen what you're saying is you know the banking financial system could have a problem though yeah no doubt but that's got to be because of something going on in the economy and you're yes, most focused on exactly. the small exactly. business or sme part yes. of the economy okay. yeah all right. So yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, I want to go on to talk about monetary policy because you kind of brought that up and I think I, we should explore that. But before I do, let me turn to Chris. And Chris, what do you think? Yeah, you want to uh, have any comments on Sebnem's, um, uh, what she's been saying so far? Any, any pushback there? I guess I was struck by this idea of uh, regulation, that we need more regulation across the uh, system. And that may very well be the case, but that's also then I think you're also making a philosophical statement in terms of the structure of the banking. Do we have too many banks, right? Because if you if you increase the regulation on those lower on those smaller banks, you're going to see even more consolidation uh, into a a system that's more concentrated in these larger units. So if that's what we want, if that's what we think is optimal. That's fine. But I think uh, I think I, I don't think we can have both. I don't think we can have much more regulation across the board and still maintain a very heterogeneous, diversified type of uh, financial system. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. This is, again, this is something very fiercely debated in the literature, in academia and in policy circles, both. And I mean, you can write down both models, right? You can write down a model where it is optimal uh, exactly uh, to consolidate, as you say. Uh, and you have, well, you know, fewer banks. Uh, so we, we have the consolidation, but they are uh, fiercely regulated. So we decrease the risk. Or you can also write down a model 
where it is optimal to have a heterogeneous, diverse system with many, many, many small players that keeps up the competition alive in the system. You can write down both models and you can have an optimal <laughs> policy coming out of both models. This, this is why we have our jobs, right? I mean, this is this is what we do in academia and write down these things, like competing models and then go and test them in the data. I mean, this is exactly why data and granular data is super important, micro data, bank level, household level, firm level data is super important to test these different models that will give you different optimal policies. And, and, and my view is, I think, uh, you know, we are, again, I mean, these risks, uh, they, they kind of accumulate over time. And if you have too many small banks, and yes, there is a competition advantage, there is a heterogeneity diversity advantage, but there is also a big disadvantage that you don't see them. Uh, and then they can easily overnight turn into a big event, and then it is going to be harder to clean up the mess and all that. So you, this is a trade-off. You trade that risk with, you consolidate, you have a you know sharper you know bird eye right view because you are going to regulate all these guys. Yes, now you decrease the competition because you are you you might you know have a you know monopoly monopoly banking sector problem in your hand, but you are you're going to have a better handle on the risks uh, in the in the system. So this is a trade off, right? So which 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 one you do? So I, I mean, and again, it's it is not clear. The answer is not clear. I agree with you. I don't know if I've ever told you the story, but you know, I started a company, uh, an economic consulting firm that I sold to Moody's. You know, uh, started with my brother and a good friend, and we sold it to Moody's about 15, 16 years ago. And we were a small company uh, early on. We needed, we were expanding, growing quickly, needed a loan. So I go to a, uh, I, I live in suburban Philly. So I go knock on the big regional bank. I won't tell you who it is, you'll figure it out. But I knocked on the door. You can guess. Said, you can guess. Hey, I need a loan. The regional big regional bank said, "No, what are you? You you're out of your mind? It's not going to happen." And you know, if I were in their shoes, I'd probably say the same thing because you know, I had no assets. I had a home, probably had five percent equity in it. So, fortunately, though, uh, I was a coach of my daughter's soccer team, and on that team was uh, a, a, a young lady whose dad was the president of Malvern Federal Savings Bank three branches, Malvern, Pennsylvania. And he said, I'll give you a loan because he knew, he knew me, he knew me personally. And he knew I would die before I wouldn't pay him back. You know, it may take me five, 50 years to pay him back, but I would pay him back. I got the loan from Malvern Federal Savings Bank. So, you know, from that experience, and I, you know, obviously we, we're all in on data, said Sebnem, you know, we, we, I agree with you, but it, I like anecdotes as well. Based on that anecdote, I go, you know, I kind of understand what, uh, why we want a lot of small banking institutions because they are really critical to those SMEs you were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. no, no, true. I mean, again, yes. I mean, so the very so this is it was between the startup SME and an SME, right? I mean, that you can you can be still small, but you can be a business in 20, 30 years, then you would get your loan from the large guy, right? So, but yes, if you are a startup, that is true. It's for small businesses that are younger than five-year-old. So there's there's a size issue and then there's an age issue, right? So this just, new guys are starting like, like your case, Mark. It is important. You want that kind of neighborhood bank that either you have some sort of a personal connection or you can go and plea your case. And yes, these guys are important. I'm not saying... 
have JP Morgan buy out the entire industry and we go down to one bank. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but at the same time, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's 4,000 optimal number. I mean, you know, so, so this, this is the thing. This is something we need to study. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe yes, we don't go to 60, but maybe it's 200. I don't know, but we, we do need to uh, protect some of that very American, you know, I'm going to go to my neighborhood bank, I will start up this business. We do need to keep that. I mean, that is that is very valuable. And yes, that is unique to America. I, I, I fully agree there. But at the same time, uh, we need to find a way of better regulate, better supervise, right? Maybe, maybe think about ways of not having regulation costly. So we keep these guys, these, you know, smaller banks, but make sure we supervise and we enforce that they don't take these type of risks. So, so we, we have to, we have to find a better way here. Yep. Got it. Let's move forward to monetary policy and you brought in the fed. Uh, here we are. Uh, the fed has been raising rates now for about a year and a half. The funds rate target is five and a quarter to five and a half percent. What do you think? Are we kind of at the end of the rate hiking cycle here? Are we at the terminal rate or is there more to go? Yeah, I think we are we are at the end. I mean, I, so my terminal rate expectation has been now for some time. I mean, I have been saying this now almost 10 months. We are going to end somewhere between 5.56. Shish. I, I don't expect to go over six, but six. Ish. I like the ish part. The ish. <laughs> six can happen. This is this is in my range. Uh, uh, so maybe we, we will stop at 5.5. Right now we are 5.2, 5.5 range anyway, but we are we are at the end. Um, I don't expect rate cuts though. So here where I differ from the financial markets, financial markets are pricing in interest rate cuts way earlier than myself and some other fellow economists. Uh, but yes, I, I, you know we are almost there at, at the terminal rate, although I, I expect they stay here for some time in the absence of a very, very, you know, harsh and deep recession. Again, this is, this is a soft landing debate, right? And are you, are you, do you have a view on that? Are you, do you have a view on soft landing versus recession? Yeah. So I, I do uh, think Fed is going to uh, succeed in this. I, I think right. it's going to be a soft landing. Chris, do you hear that? Chris <laughs> is the bear. I'm just, just, okay. <laughs> did you hear that, Chris? I am, I am hopeful. I, I hope that's the case. That's also, um, I'm also a very positive uh, and hopeful person, but I have been saying this uh, now for some time, not just because, you know, I, I want it to be like that and be positive and hopeful, but because of the research we did. We, we did these very early papers on COVID inflation uh, starting as early as January 2021, actually. We were in the group. Mm that says uh, there is going to be inflation. But we also said, uh, you know, Larry Summers is right for the wrong reasons. In fact, if he put it exactly like that, that's us. I'm, awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm right with you on that one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. You, because, you're saying it's supply side, more supply exactly, side. Supply side. So we said, we said very early, and I had a presentation, like literally, I mean, WHO presentation, January 2021, before mm-hmm. everything else, there's going to be inflation, but it's going to start with the supply chain, right? So it's going to start with the supply chain, with the product prices. I mean, now there's a new paper by uh, Ben Bernanke and Olivia Blanchard. They also show the same thing. Yeah. It's not wages first, the prices first. <laughs> that completely links to the supply chain problem. The, the glo- This is global 
although of course this is not just United States, this is you know local supply chain and global supply chain going back to China. So we did the first paper on that. We did a second paper showing how when fiscal stimulus came, put that on steroids, right? Yeah. You started the supply chain problem, inflation starts, then of course, you know, maybe you would have stayed at five, you went to nine thanks to this huge fiscal stimulus, right? That's the demand side story. That's the second phase. And then, of course, the final phase, the Russia and Ukraine obviously added to that more severely for Europe, of course. Uh, but now we document all these three phases of inflation, pandemic or inflation, starting with the supply chain issue, fiscal stimulus, of course, you know, you know, amplifies that. And then you add the energy. So we are coming down. So in that sense, um, you know, we always told this can be a soft landing, right? Because the shock process is just very different. I mean, if you know, people compare the 1970s, but I don't think that's that's the right comparison. That's just a part of it, right? You have a you have a supply shock and a demand shock happening at the different times, and there is a sectoral dimension to this, and there's a global dimension to this, right? It's not just energy, or it's not just you know, uh, manufacturing sector, it is like the services, the labor market. I mean, the labor market came to the picture because of, of course, the huge demand increase in the services sector, which combined with the recovery and opening up. So given all this research, I always told, you know, a, a credible tightening cycle clearly communicated, right, which is what Fed was trying to do, which, by the way, I and mean, we should all give it to Fed, very hard to do, because you get out of forward guidance and you go to a data-driven policy, a data communicating clearly a data-driven policy is extremely difficult to financial markets because financial markets are forward-looking. They want to know the past, right? They want to know the future. So that's how they were. And then you go and say, well, I'm going to look at the data and I'm going to look at six different indicators of the of the labor market and the energy and the, you know, so all this, this is very difficult to communicate. But basically the research we have done says, such a different environment with several shocks happening different times uh, in the economy and a, a, a clearly communicated and consistent tightening cycle can, you know, uh, engineer a soft landing. So in that sense, we never, our research never hijacked by this, you know, Phillips curve story, because I mean, if you always think in terms of the Phillips curve and say there's just this slope and it was flat, now it is steep, this is limiting to us uh, in our view. So we work with these network models. Uh, you know, these are also very complicated models, but basically you can connect every single sector to each other locally and globally. So, you know, when basically you don't import steel from China, the effect of that in the steel sector and then the, the labor steel sector users and the wage group, we can, we can quantitatively trace this out. So, uh, so in that sense, we really like our research, of course, but stand behind it that this is the best <laughs> way. In our view, this is the best way to quantify what you know drove inflation when in 2020, 2021, 2022. And then once you do that quantification, you can see that you know why uh Fed is going very careful and why they keep talking about these different sectors of the economy, right? Remember, they said like, okay, so there's the headline, the core, and, uh, you know, then you you peel that, the famous onion uh, analogy of uh, John Williams, New York Fed president, and then there is the PC, then there is the X shelter one, and there is the, you know, so all these, because of the nature of this shock, and Fed has been right in looking at this all along, because the nature of the shock is you have different sectors being hit different times with different shocks. Uh, and then you also add to that the global dimension of the problem. You know, you, it is a very, very complicated problem. And I, you know, no, not really, not yeah. really. <laughs> not, no. Really, Mark. No, come I, on. 
that you get a pandemic, you get supply chain disruptions, it messes yeah. up the labor market, you get a Russian war in Ukraine, and oil prices go yeah. skyward. Food, you know, it's okay. that, that's pretty straightforward, I, you know, okay. in my view. The narrative, the narrative is very straightforward. That's, I fully agree. But, but to get a handle on that in terms of quantification with numbers, okay. this difficult why because because of the models the 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 flat works so they you're work. saying disentangling the supply shocks from the demand shocks isn't, isn't. And, and also how long it takes and also you know yeah. so recall the debate. i mean the debate in the past 15 months has been about that how long it takes okay, how long but okay so sebnem sebnem so you said all this but why does the funds rate have to go to six percent then i mean uh, you know the pandemic and russian war effects are fading they're in the room yeah. yeah. inflation's yeah. coming in feels pretty good. Uh, you know, all the trend lines look good. Uh, the things you can forecast in inflation with some certainty, like the cost of housing services or vehicle prices, we know they're coming in. So why? No, it may not. It may not have to, okay. but, this is, okay. but this is this is about my complicated thing. Because if you try to uh, guess at the, uh, okay, not yet. If you try to estimate the terminal rate and when you stop based on your one sector, aggregate Phillips curve model, you cannot get an exact. No, 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 but that's. This is, it, okay, but this, you and I, we understand it. We're on the same page. I, I, that, yeah, exactly. well, obviously, but, the Phillips curve is not pertinent here. I mean, we got, we're at three and a half percent on employment rate for a year and a half and inflation exactly. coming in. Okay, but this is why, okay, but Mark, now let me push back. This is why I said it's complicated because complicated means you have to be thinking about sectoral Phillips curve. If you start thinking about sectoral so there's there, you know, even like you do a fairly, you know, decent aggregation, you are going to be dealing with 66 sectors in the United States economy. You open up globally, this is going to explode, right? And you are going to now think about those, you know, 66 Phillips curve. This is complicated. I mean, complicated in the sense that you are trying to estimate an average number based on that. So it is Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that is complicated. 66 yeah. times 73. Exactly. All I know is it feels like inflation's coming in as the supply yeah. shocks begin to you, fade. You, 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 exactly. No, you're exactly. So we may not have to go to six. We may not have to go. But this is exactly what they are trying to, right? They never wanted to do more than they needed. But at the same time, they want to do enough that they wouldn't be in a posi position of, oh, we didn't do enough. And the risk of that, having the inflation, messing up the inflation expectations and becoming sticky is bigger, right? So this was the, the very delicate dance they were trying to uh, do the last 15 months. And, and we might stay at 5.3, 5.5, Mike. And this, again, goes back to data-driven policy, right? Now, this data came out great this week. The next piece of data coming like that, so we are in the right trend, they are going to stay. They are not going to go to six. So, but this is exactly what I think uh, they mean with data-driven uh, policymaking. Well, I'm all in on data. We're we're big fans of data. In fact, I think you you use a lot of our data, the Orbis data. So that's yes, yes, yeah, that's our data. That's our data, by the way. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I know. It's like your data. I'm a big fan. So of we're your... all in on data. We're gonna bring it on, baby. Uh, yeah. I want to. I, I think we've uh, taken enough of your time. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, I I'll have to say I feel a lot better. Uh, you know, I, I actually was still am, but a, a little less concerned about the banking system. I feel like that could still be an issue. And I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page. I, and the listeners should know, I, I didn't know what your view was on inflation <laughs> before I had you on, but it was glad to hear it. But uh, I really do appreciate your optimism and, and uh, you know, I'm very sympathetic to it. So uh, thank great. you for coming on. Um, thank you so much. This was great. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. And with, with that, dear listener, we are going to call this a podcast. Take care now, everyone.